0: You are listening to Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist Humanist Podcast. My name is Brandon Cooney.
1: And I'm Andrew Kleiman.
0: On this episode, we bring you a very special treat a debate between our co host, Andrew Kleiman, and Patrick Murray. Our regular listeners will remember that back on episode 17 and 18, we brought you a double episode in which Andrew discussed his criticisms of the value form paradigm and specifically Patrick Murray's co-constitutive interpretation of value form theory. Patrick Murray was very gracious and agreed to come on the podcast with us today and discuss some of those criticisms. Our recorded conversation was quite long, so we're going to break this up into two episodes, this being the first. To hear more episodes of Radio Free Humanity, to read more about the issues discussed, or to join in the conversation, please visit MarxistHumanistInitiative.org. You can also make a donation to the podcast on the website there. While our podcast is hosted by Marxist Humanist Initiative, the views expressed by the co-hosts and guests of Radio Free Humanity are their own. They do not necessarily reflect the views and positions of MHI. In just a moment, we'll talk about value form theory with Patrick Murray and Andrew Kleinman. But first, as we do every episode of Radio Free Humanity, we're going to take a few minutes to discuss some current events. We are recording this current events section on Wednesday, August 26th, and we're going to be talking about the Republican and Democratic National Conventions.
1: Where should we start? Uh, a tweet I saw today from Andrew Slack. If you will rearrange the letters in Republican National Convention, it spells "Con Vulnerable Nation into Panic." <laughs> That's great. Yeah.
0: We're only two days into the RNC, and already it's an insane dumpster fire of rabid hate speech and destruction of all norms and conventions. I think
1: the Republicans are going for the white nationalist vote and the insane vote.
0: Yeah. Uh, There's already been a lot of coverage of Kimberly Guilfoyle's speech, if you want to call it that, on Monday night. All I could think of when I saw it was uh, the two minutes of hate in George Orwell's 1984. It was like Big Brother screaming into the television, and I just picture all the Trump base at home on their couches screaming back at the television.
1: Well, I mean, I, I found last night, Tuesday, much worse because of the really reprehensible way that Trump was using people, people applying for citizenship, this ex-con that he pardoned. Uh, I mean, he's using these people as pawns in, in his re-election campaign. I thought that that naturalization ceremony was absolutely reprehensible. Well, everything he does is bad, but that was absolutely atrocious. I mean, not only did he basically say, you people are a credit to your race. I mean, he didn't quite say it in those terms, but that was the, the, the character of, of his talk. I mean, I, I think there are some pundits who are saying he's trying to, you know, solve in his anti-immigrant image. I don't think it was that at all. I think he was playing to his base and saying, look how I can get these people to stand up and bark when I tell them to stand up and bark. Look at how I'm going to basically degrade and and humiliate them and make them pawns in in my game. See what I can get away with here. Ha ha ha. I I think that was very much playing to the base. And, you know, these people are stuck. Five people win the lottery, so to speak. Uh, And some thing they, they I heard on TV is not only does he do a tremendously horrible thing against, you know, immigrants and refugees and so forth, but he's created a backlog of people who are ready to be naturalized. You know, they've gone through every hoop and it's just that he won't allow them to become naturalized because the, the courts or whatever are shut down and he won't allow it to be, be done through Zoom or whatever it might be.
0: You know, one of the things about the RNC I haven't seen mentioned yet is, you know, Monday night he had this couple who are now famous, Mark and Patricia McCloskey.
1: Oh, Karen and Ken Vigilante, yes.
0: Yeah, who pointed their guns to Black Lives Matter protesters a few months ago and became sort of a cause celeb for the fascist, Trumpist, Blue Lives Matter people. Yeah. So we had them on Monday night and then Tuesday night during the protest in Kenosha, Wisconsin, a Vigilante shot three anti-racist protesters yep you know and i Mm -hmm. it's hard for me to not see a connection like a deliberate incitement to violence between having these two morons celebrating them as heroes on monday night and then people go out and imitate it the next night. But now two people are dead in Wisconsin.
1: Right, and even if it's not a one-to-one connection between those two uh, St. Louis assholes and the shooting, there's just a tremendous amount of him inciting violence, so it doesn't have to be one-to-one. I mean these people are so the racism of what they said was you know just like so totally upfront. and the way they portray it is unbelievable like you want to have not such segregated housing and they go you know the democrats want to destroy the suburbs you know excuse me that's not destroying the suburbs it's Maybe destroying your your image of what a suburb should be, but it's not, this, you know, I mean, calling it destroying the suburbs, it, it's it's absolutely reprehensible. But everything Trump has done is play to his base, and, you know, people expected him to pivot, and he, he's never pivoted, and he he's not going to. Yeah, I mean, if if pivoting was was what we saw Tuesday instead of Monday, I mean, yeah, maybe, <laughs> right, right. but it's a joke, right? And uh, y- you actually have to understand how his base is seeing it as well. They they rightly don't think it's pivoting. They they rightly understand the, the the subtext.
0: The other thing that many commentators have talked about is just the way this RNC production is completely centered around Trump and his family and his family members' girlfriends. It feels like, you know, a North Korean presentation or a third world dictatorship where the family mob and the state have merged into a unity and there's like nothing outside of that Trump organization left. You know, the campaign and the presidency are merged. He's like campaigning from the White House. Pompeo is speaking from Israel. All the institutions have been hollowed out and just turned into arms of the Trump organization.
1: Yeah, I mean he, this this man has like basically said the state is me. His people say, "Ah, you know, it's just like for beltway insiders, real people don't care." Right? Well, yeah, so they don't care, but it it's absolutely it's absolutely a- 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 atrocious what they're doing. But I mean, the, I, I think the Democratic National C- Convention was also an insult to our intelligence. And basically, these are not conventions. These are these are infomercials. You know, we, we actually haven't had real political conventions in a very, very, very long time, because we don't have real parties anymore. We, we Actually, we never did in the United States, but not like you have in Europe, with membership and so forth. You know, way back in the days before TV and stuff, they used to actually like do their business at conventions. Now, when you got the TV cameras on and you got this mass participation, you know, through primaries, you still got the backroom dealings, but the convention site can't serve as a back room where you do your dealing. So they, they, they put on shows, but because they actually couldn't congregate in person, became even, you know, just more showy and less any real business, uh, even for, for the Democrats. But I'll tell you, the, the thing that I found most interesting about the Democratic convention was their election strategy going after Donald Trump and saying we're not Trump and vote for Biden because he's not Trump it seems to be an exact replay of Hillary Clinton's strategy in 2016 which is actually fine with me because I think that's the right issue. And I think, you know, Clinton did what she should have done. It, it You know, it didn't work in a certain sense because Comey and Putin and so forth didn't want it to, to work. So all kinds of things w- went on. But I mean, that's the right thing to do. But since it was widely judged to be a failure, it's actually kind of surprising that, you know, they're going to that once more. So maybe the political climate has changed and maybe people didn't Know enough about Trump, and they couldn't anticipate what he would do enough back in 2016, to take on board the idea that like I'm not Trump, and, and look, that's all that matters. Maybe after four years of horrors, that line is going to sink in somewhat better. But I don't think that's I don't think that's really it. I I I, I really think that because I I look at the polls and all of this, you have two basic camps of people. You got like 51% of the the people dead set, they're not going to vote for Trump no matter what, you know, almost all of them are going to vote for Biden. Then you got the Trump base, the hardcore, that's another 42%. There's like 7% of people who are, maybe I'll change my mind, I'm unsure, something like that. So I I think that the Democrats are probably going after their universe of who we want to try to convince who's not already convinced is like maybe seven percent of people and they've decided to concentrate on maybe one or maybe two percent you know out of that seven who are never trumpers disaffected mainstream republicans of the past and just to say look this is not normal and we've got normal republicans on board and our normal republicans are going to tell you yeah it's okay we'll fight biden in the future but saving democracy and get, getting back to some semblance of a, a government that functions as a government and not a plaything for Donald Trump and a means for his self-enrichment and, you know, enforcement mechanism against his enemies. This, this time, that's what you got to do is vote against that. I think that that's probably the strategy. Because, I mean, there I didn't see much in the way of programming by the, the Democrats that looked like it, was, it wasn't appealing to the Trumpite base and it wasn't appealing to anybody to the left of Biden. Didn't really.
0: Well, that's all the time we're going to have to discuss current events in this episode. But I'm sure we will be returning to these conversations about the 2020 elections in the U.S. over the next few months. Up next, uh, the first part of our discussion with Patrick Murray about the value form. <music> we are very pleased to have Patrick Murray on the podcast today to talk about value form theory. And to respond to criticisms we made about value form theory in a previous two part episode. So Patrick, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for the invitation. Good to good to be
1: here. Yes, thanks, Patrick. And hi. Thank you, Andrew.
0: It's a rare thing in the world of Marxist theory and a value theory for people to sit down and try to hash out their differences and make sense of their different positions on things. So uh, I think this is a rare treat, this episode, but we're going to hopefully get to the bottom of some things. Patrick, before we get into that, though, can you just tell our listeners who you are?
2: Right. So I teach philosophy at Creighton University in Omaha, Nebraska. I've been here for quite some time. Uh, I've written a couple of books on Marx. uh, Marx's theory of scientific knowledge came out in 1988. And then more recently in 2016, a collection of essays over a couple of decades called The Mismeasure of Wealth. I was fortunate to be part of a research group, the International Symposium on Marxian Theory, ISMT, for many, many years. We met, I think, about 23 years years in a row, so. Yeah, I've been in it a while. (laughs) So the three of us have been emailing back
0: and forth, and we agreed upon a set of questions for us to talk about on the podcast today. Uh, Both Patrick and Andrew will have a chance to respond uh, more than once on each question, if needed. So let's just jump right into the first question, which is, what does it mean to be a value form theorist, and is value form theory only qualitative.
2: Yeah, thank you, Ben. So I think one way you could say to be a value-form theorist would be to have a theory of the value form. If we take that simple approach, then I don't think it's really even controversial that Marx is a value-form theorist. He has a whole section on the value form in the first chapter of Capital. He praises Aristotle as perhaps the first value-form theorist, although he didn't really solve the problems that he set out for himself. He spent a lot of time with uh, one of the only people, contemporaries, who he thinks works on the value form theory, Samuel Bailey, writes about 50 pretty intense pages on that. So I would say if you've got a theory of the value form, that's to say, how does value appear? And in Marx's case, how does value necessarily appear, namely as money and price? That would make you a value form theorist. There are narrower conceptions and in my essay, I tried to get at that as the idea of exchange only. So something Theorists, not myself, but some value-form theorists really think seem to think that value is simply a matter of uh, circulation, basically follow Bailey, I would say, in equating value and price. Is value-form theory qualitative only? No. I think the key, right off the bat in Capital, Marx, uh, in talking about value, talks about the inseparability, essentially, of the issues of the substance of value, the magnitude of value, and the form of value. I think that's crucial. to to situate us here is that these are inseparable. He distinguishes them and he takes them in order. First the substance, then the magnitude, and the magnitude, he says, is labor time. So the quantitative and the qualitative really are inseparable. And that's, I would say, a key to the interpretation I take.
1: Yeah. uh, On the issue of is value form theory qualitative only, I think Patrick is reacting to a statement I made in in one of our podcasts. And I mean, don't shoot the messenger. I was only reporting how the precursors of the value form paradigm talked about their stuff at the time in the 1970s. They said the Schroffian, Ricardian version of Marx's value theory, quantitative value Theory, Yeah, that's internally inconsistent, but there is in capital also this qualitative theory. I I was just reporting that. And even they didn't think that it limited itself to qualitative claims. The more interesting question is perhaps what makes somebody a, a value form theorist. And I, I really prefer what Patrick said about this in uh, his article that I, I've been responding to in these podcasts. And he distinguishes, this is on page 220 of uh, Avoiding Bad Abstractions, he, he proposes that we distinguish simply having some theory of the value form from value form theory in the more restrictive sense that it's widely employed today. So yeah, Marx had some theory of the value form. So did Aristotle, so does every money in banking textbook. Book that students of uh, economics and business students read, right? You know, you're just talking about money and what it has to do with value. But what we mean by value form theory today is either what Patrick calls the extreme one-sided exchange-only variant or something like, or his version, which he calls a co-constitutive, which holds that value and the magnitude of value are co-constituted in production and circulation. In that more restrictive sense, I I think it's clear that Marx is not a value form theorist in that latter sense.
2: So I think the key in, in this regard is Marx's claim that a price money is the necessary expression of value. And I think that's a much stronger point than just sort of having some idea about money and price. Marx, and in terms of, you know, everybody having a, a value form theory, I mean, Marx says hardly anybody has a value form theory. And I called attention to Aristotle and to Bailey because those are the two people that he engages who actually have a theory of the value form, who are really interested in the question of how is value going to express itself. Value is something that's very strange, congealed, socially necessary, abstract labor. He says at the beginning of that section on the value form, this is something that you, you can't see, twist it, turn it, however you like. It's a super sensible social quality. It's not something that you see. And therefore, the question of how does it appear is very pressing with something like value. And to really kind of work that out, he thinks that's one of the main things that the tradition of political economy, well, really no one before him. Another point about Marx and that's crucial, his value form theory stresses the polarity of the value form, right? So there's the commodity and then there's money. The commodity is in the relative value form. The money is in the equivalent value form. I don't know that there's anybody in the literature uh, who really has that that theory of the polarity of the value form. So there's a lot to Marx as a value form theorist. He's not just somebody who you know has a theory of value and has a theory of price.
1: Right. The problem is that we don't jettison necessary distinctions and wrap everything up into a muddle in which Marx having a theory of value form makes him a value form theorist. And then there's a simple step to, well, then he's a precursor of the people who now call themselves value form theorists. That's an illegitimate move. And I think we have to have clear and distinct ideas about this. So if people had not come along to expropriate Marx's term, uh, you know, value form and and stuff, there would be no problem. But I don't want to say that he's a value form theorist because although he had some theory of the value form and it's illuminating and stuff, he has no real relationship except being the opposite of uh, either the exchange-only variant or the co-constitutive variant of what calls itself value form uh, theory today. And whatever Marx may have written, uh, I mean, everybody talks about the value form. I mean, Bombaver wrote, I quoted this to somebody the other day, he 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 said Marx's statement that the total price equals such and such amount of money is meaningless since, quote, commodities do eventually exchange with commodities when one penetrates the disguises due to the use of money, close quote. That's a statement about value form that I don't happen to agree with, but it is a statement about uh, value form.
0: Hopefully we can get over the course of this discussion and moving through these questions some clarity as to what the actual claims are that are at stake here, as well as whether or not Marx can be read to have these claims or not. So why don't we move on to the next question, which is, I'm gonna to pose to you first, Andrew, and that is, in Marx's theory, is a the commodity's value only potential prior to sale?
1: Uh, short answer, no. Longer answer, I, I don't even know what that means, as I've said. It's dawned on me that perhaps what's being said, and I would like, you know, confirmation or clarification, is that a commodity only potentially has value prior to sale, and it's sale that turns that potential to have value into an actuality, okay? So to my mind, there's a distinction between having a potential value, which I don't know what that means, and potentially having value, which I do know what that means, and that is not... very. Very clearly not Marx's theory.
2: Okay. Uh, Patrick? Yeah. Well, Marx talks about latent value. Uh, I, let, let, me, let me connect it to our the first point uh, that I wanted to make about the inseparability of the substance, the magnitude, and the form of value. We know from from the treatment of the value form, Marx's treatment of the value form in section three, that the form of value is money. So if those are inseparable, then value is inseparable from money. And uh, therefore, until the commodity has been exchanged for money, we don't really have actualized value. And Marx says this sort of thing really over and over again in the contribution to the critique. He'll say things, you know, it's value is not something that's ready-made, but an emerging result that, you know, it has to be realized, actualized in money. So the idea... Idea that this is something that's potential. I think is you know comes up in many uh, many many places in chapter three, the chapter on money, and and so forth. So this is it's a potential until it is actualized, and Marx uses that language of realization or actual actualization of this potential but a potential is not nothing okay i i sometimes wonder uh if that's the problem uh no a, a a potential is is something real uh but it could fail to be it could be fail to be actualized
1: I mean, my follow-up question is a repeat of my question. When you say the commodity has a potential value prior to sale, is what you mean that it it, it potentially has a value prior to sale? Because that I understand, and that's the theory that Marx posed. I think I can show that. So it potentially has a value because, uh, you know, it's a use value or it's at least a material object of the kind that people use, it's produced, and so, you know, they might be able to sell. So it potentially has value, but only the act of exchange makes that potential into an actuality. If that's what you're saying, I completely understand it. And, you know, in its own way, it's a legitimate theory. It's not Marxist theory. But the other thing that you said, Patrick, is, well, uh, in Marxist theory, value is inseparable from money. I absolutely agree with that. And then you deduced from that that, therefore, the commodity does not, not have actual value until it is sold. That's not a a syllogism that that I can see.
2: Well, if it had value before it was sold, then it would have value independent of taking the money form, being, as Marx calls it, transubstantiated, uh, which he says is a very hard thing to do. Uh, He emphasizes that. But uh, in other words, you, you want to insist that value is fully determinate, so a commodity, a produced commodity, has a fully determinate value prior Prior to its sale. But that would mean that value would be independent of the money. And so that was my simple point is Marx doesn't have that theory. Marx insists on the three are inseparable. The substance, the magnitude, and uh, the form. But the form uh, is, as he develops it, is money. So you can't have actualized value before you have the sale. You, you, you see, it, it's a syllogism that works. Just just so
0: maybe our listeners can think concretely about the question so if I say go to a grocery store and I see a box of cereal on the shelf and it says five dollars but I haven't bought the cereal yet is its value and the price on the box um, only a potential price and then once I buy it it's now a now it's that's the cereal's actual value um or also (laughs) if I'm thinking of like reselling a commodity as you don't resell a box of cereal but reselling a car or a bicycle or something um and i've actualized the value once is it then become potential value again if i'm going to you know does the commodity have an actual value that that you know can it be a store of value can it um hold value after i've purchased it? Or is it like this moment of actualization just sort of as a fleeting moment where money is exchanged with it and now it becomes latent value again?
2: Yeah, thanks for that question. Actually, that that whole question. Uh, my wife Jean Schuler and I wrote an article recently, The Commodity Spectrum, to kind of deal with this question about the resale and so forth. Uh, the short answer would be yes, it could have potential value if you if you would want to, certain things that you would want to resale. Yeah, I mean the answer is I mean how many prices does a commodity have? I would say one. So this is something that Mark says: if the commodity can't be realized in money, its price becomes merely imaginary. So there's that box. A cereal for five bucks, fine. There's nothing in principle that says nobody will buy that for five bucks. So, what's the price? Is it $5? You have to sell it. There's only one price. I mean, there's imaginary prices. And I agree, pricing is part of the system. I mean, in business plans, things are given prices before they're even, you even undertake the business, before they're even made. So, uh, this is all part of the, you know, the theory of price in the chapter on money is you can, all you need, you know, you can assign prices, but there's really the price that Marx is talking about is the selling price, which, by the way, is not the value. The price is not the value. That's Samuel Bailey. That's not Marx. That's not me. Selling it is part of the whole process of the realization. So, you know, Marx says universal social labor, and that's the kind of labor that is value producing, is consequently not a ready-made perquisite, but an emerging result. It only through the sale. He says this over and over again.
0: But not through the being equated with money and given a price, but through the sale
2: itself. Well, that is that is having a, that that is selling. You sell at a price. No, yeah, but, I'm saying, but the, the price the, the,
0: is, com- is not the value. The, the box of cereal on the shelf that has a price written on it is its its right. value is latent until I buy it for that price, or is it already have been actualized because its value has been uh, given a price? Or, you know, like what's where, where the,
2: the former, the former giving, giving it a price you can give you what? So what if, what if it, what if I, I'm a crazy grocer and I put uh, $1,000 on a box of Cheerios? That's a price. So, you know, Andrew in the podcast pointed out that the difference between the ontological and the epistemological and said, well, nobody knows what the value is, but that everything, that things have values and prices before they're sold. Yeah, but, um, you know, how do you know what the price is? Yes, you can set that price. You walk in, there it is, $5. Well, that's because the grocer thinks it'll sell at $5 and that will work in the business plan. But what's going to tell you where to set that price is, you know. What what things are... I mean, part of what's going to tell you that is what things are are actually selling at. I'm not going to sell my cereal at $1,000. It's a price.
1: Yeah. I mean, Marx is writing in the tradition of political economy, in in their time and our time, what economists mean by the price in in a competitive market is not anything that anybody sets. So the grocer does not set the price of the Cheerios or whatever. And it's perfectly correct to say that you can slap $1,000 on your box of Cheerios. But the point is that that is not the price, okay? Now, is the price determined by the amount of money that somebody happens to to buy that for? Well, not really. I mean, it's a bigger social process. I mean, if you, for instance, imagine a, a big open air farmer's market and you got a lot of people selling, let's say, apples. You know, you can stick $1,000, you know, per pound on your apples. You're not going to get that, okay? So who sets the price? Nobody sets the price. No seller, no buyer. Price is what results from this process of competition among the sellers and, and competition among the buyers,
2: okay? I'm sorry, Andrew, but you, you, you want to say that price and value, you said, said in the podcast that value and price are determined Prior to sale.
1: Prior and independently of them. Yeah, but you seem to be
2: not saying that now.
1: No, I'm absolutely saying that. The issue is the cause. I'm not saying that if they sell for $2 a pound, therefore their price is $2 a pound. I am saying if they sell for $2 a pound, then we know that, that the price is $2 a pound. But what is determining that price is what economists regularly refer to as the determinants of supply and demand. These are factors that influence the magnitude of the price and you know, also the magnitude of the value. Incomes, taste and preferences, prices of related goods, the technology, uh, you know, Marx would put it in terms of the amount of labor socially necessary to produce the commodity. These determinants or forces, if you will, these are what determine the price and, and the value. It's not any action of anybody that is doing this. At least that's the concep- the conception in, in, in economics. And, and I think Brendan raised a very important point. Yeah, we're all agreed here. Value is not independent of money. But the, the, the issue, I think, is that the values of commodities are expressed in money form prior to sale, independent of sale, after sale. So I, I don't think that one can deduce anything concerning the role of sale and the determination of value from the fact that money is inseparable from it. OK, because because all independently and before sale, commodities values are expressed in in money.
2: What does that mean, Andrew? I mean, uh, does that mean like the five dollar price? But you might not get your five dollar price. That's what that's why Marx distinguishes between that might be an imaginary price. A-
1: absolutely, R- right, now let me just answer that, absolutely. So you, you, you stick $5 on the box. So that is not the price of the cereal that it's gonna sell, sell for, it's also not the price of the cereal when it's sitting on the shelf, okay? It, it, the price of the cereal might be 349 it might be 297 I don't know what it is, you don't know what it is, nobody knows what it is, that only is proven or appears in the process of exchange. But the point is, it does have some price
2: frankly, Andrew, I think you're, if I understand the position you've been taking just now, it's very much what I understood myself to be arguing for. When you say that demand and supply or I'm focused on demand conditions are determinative of price and value. Well, that means that value is not determined in production alone. That's really my point.
1: Right. I would never say anything like value is determined in production alone. That's a sloppy formulation that gets us into a a lot of problems. I, I, w- I, wouldn't, I wouldn't put it like that. I, w- I would put it the way Marx puts it. Let me see how he says it. What exclusively determines the magnitude of the value of any article is therefore the amount of labor socially necessary or the labor time socially necessary for its production. That's a much more particular and, and precise statement.
2: I know, but uh, that statement, which I agree with, of course, is says only speaks of production. That is a determinant that only mentions production, doesn't it? Yes. Well then you were gonna cite that as an indication that Marx actually sees that the question of demand and supply, the market questions, does anybody really see your product as useful? Is anybody willing to buy it at one price or another? That that isn't there in that in that line. Except of course my argument, and Brendan, maybe this moves us on to a different point too, is what's involved in socially necessary. So I agree very much with the idea that socially necessary has to do with production conditions and uh, are you producing at sort of the norm of the producers in your field? Yes, definitely that. But then Marx goes on to say that if you, I mean, it's just a very simple point about uh, for something to have value, it has to be useful. So I can put as much socially necessary labor time into a product as I like, socially necessary in terms of, you know, am I at the level of my competitors in terms of the productive power of labor and producti- productivity and so forth? But Marx says, yeah, But if nobody wants to buy that, your labor, and, and he'll put it this way, doesn't count as labor. It doesn't produce value. So that, even though the quote that you mentioned talks only about production, Marx doesn't say everything. You know, we all know Marx doesn't say everything all at once. I mean, he has a the theory of production prices. That doesn't come for a long, a long time, prices of production. Uh, so not everything gets said in at once. But often he, he'll write and anticipating things. And I think what he's anticipating there is that socially necessary is going to involve the market conditions. Socially necessary is, does anybody want this product? If they don't, then the labor that's gone into it simply doesn't uh, produce value. It doesn't count as value-producing labor, and your product doesn't have value. So socially necessary has a double meaning, but the meaning that refers to the market, because in, early in the book, he's just sort of assuming that supply and demand are, are, are matching, and that factor just doesn't factor in. But in many different places later on, he'll take another look at that
0: very short clarifying question. And because of this um, this f- fact that a commodity has to be socially useful and have a de- there has to be demand for it, because of that, you would say that it only has potential this is an argument for why commodity only has potential value prior to sale, right? That's that's your point you're making, Patrick. That's right. Okay. That's exactly right. Okay.
1: Yeah, I, I think there's a confusion between demand and exchange in what was just said. You know, demand matters in the sense of if there's not demand for something, it's not a use value, and, and therefore it has no value. And it's true that w- whether there is demand for it or not is revealed or, quote, proven, close quote, only in exchange. But that is different from saying that the demand is determined in exchange. No, demand is not determined in exchange, it's revealed in exchange. But I think that Patrick got on the, the key issue when he said, I'm very happy that he said this, that the concept of socially necessary labor here, it's actually two concepts, and they mean two different things. So this is why I don't want to say something like, does what count as socially necessary labor depend solely on production conditions? No. If there is not demand for something, then it is not a use value, and something that is not a use value does not have value. It's not a zero value, it's just, it's, it's, it's not a commodity, it's not value. Okay, so demand matters in that sense. And that's not just production conditions, but, in Marx's theory, if we are talking about a commodity, something that is a use value, then the exclusive determinant of the magnitude of its value is the amount of labor that is socially necessary for its production. I understand that these are really, really, you know, thin... I'm cutting very thin distinctions here, but it it really is needed in this case to clear up uh, decades and decades of confusions.
2: I don't know that you're having thin distinctions. It just seems to me you want it both ways. Demand matters, but it doesn't matter. I mean, or put it this way, and Marx makes this kind of observation often, is like, well, if demand doesn't matter, then only production matters. Well, yeah, I agree. And and that's that's why he writes that uh, the way he does. I mean, he, he writes it, the quote you, you gave, which is a really important one, and I agree with completely, that's assuming that demand doesn't matter, okay? So, you know, lack of demand, can destroy essentially potential value. It can't. It can't create it. I, I think. I think you're agree- One I has think, to happen to Once talking
1: things. about two different things. And one is whether the product is a use value. And then, given that the product is a use value, what determines the magnitude of its value? I, to me, those are different questions. See, the point
2: is, in the real world, you're not given that. You, you don't know whether new Coke is going to work or not. You don't know whether there's going to be a pandemic that drives the price of your oil that's, you know, in ships, cargo ships, you know, way down. I mean, you don't know. Isn't that a question of epistemology rather than ontology? No, it's ontology. I mean, there might not have been a pandemic. Maybe people would have liked the new Coke and wanted to buy it. Maybe people would have liked the Edsel and bought all kinds of Edsels. You don't know. That's, you know, capitalism's risky business. You put it out there, will people buy it or not? You don't You don't know that. That's why it's potential. But, but, but that's all a question of knowing rather than being. No. No, it's not. <laughs> I mean, you don't know because you have to see what happens
0: right isn't that the same argument with socially necessary labor you don't know whether you're yeah
1: this is the argument. it is it about is, about is the same necessary problems.
0: labor i mean outside of the question of whether or not there's demand for your product just with the question of average productivity you may not know if the labor you're performing is at average productivity or not until your product tries to sell in the market but that doesn't change whether or not average productivity is a real fact a thing, a truth that exists at a given moment in a uh, structure of production.
2: That's right. Although, as Andrew rightly pointed out in one of the first two podcasts there, of course, yes, I agree. You don't know. And it's not necessarily staying the same, right? So before you get your product finished or to market or something like that, what is the socially average production techniques or level of productivity that can be changing? And as Andrew pointed out, that would be changing the value. I would say that would be changing the potential value. But I think in in regard to that, we agree. That's certainly in Marx. You don't know that. But what but But I think with demand... But I mean, Mark's,
0: you know, Andrew's point was just because you as the producer don't know it doesn't mean there isn't an actual social average to be discovered. The fact of the social average is doesn't depend on whether or not you know it or not.
1: Or there isn't a determinate answer to the question of whether there is demand for this product or not. We might not know, but it either does or does not have, you know, some demand. Well...
2: uh (laughs) So that's like a fact, so like there was a fact before Edsels were rolled out, before the new Coke was rolled out, like there was a fact of the matter about what the level of demand would be.
1: No, no, no. I mean, at this point, a can of new Coke either has the demand for this particular can of new Coke either exists or does not exist. Back in 1950, whatever, once Edsel's were off the line, this particular Edsel in the, the lot, there was or was not demand for it. Okay, and that gets shown in the process of exchange, but that is not being determined in exchange.
2: I don't quite see why it matters, particularly whether, I mean, it seems to me that demand could be shifting daily, hourly, uh, in principle. But setting that aside, I mean, the point about the idea that it, whether demand is being shown or not, the question is really whether or not demand is a determinant of price and value. Demand's not a production condition. So it seems to me you're granting that demand is a determinant of price and value. That's that's all I'm arguing is that, I mean, that makes it a co constituent Theory. That's what I'm arguing for. That's what I, I find in Marx. Okay. This is really hard for most people to
1: get, but absolutely, it is the case in Marx that demand, in some cases and in some senses, is a determinant of value. The issue, however, is it is when it is a determinant of the magnitude of the commodity's value, it is the determinant of its value in a manner that does not contradict Marx's statement that the exclusive determinant of the magnitude of the commodity's value is the amount of labor time socially necessary for its production. The basic case is the one he lays out in chapter 10 of volume 3, where he says, look, imagine that demand for the particular kind of product is very strong, very high demand. Because there's very high demand and it can command a high price, that allows inefficient producers to come in and compete in the market. And these inefficient producers produce at a higher than average value because they're inefficient. So that raises the average amount of labor that's socially necessary to produce the commodity. So the demand Demand is affecting the amount of labor that's socially necessary to produce because it's bringing into the market inefficient high-value producers. And conversely, if demand is low. So yes, demand conditions are determinants of the magnitude of a commodity's value, but only insofar, according to Marxist theory, as they affect the amount of labor that is socially necessary to produce the commodity.
2: But Andrew, that's very elegant and I agree completely. but uh, what if I've just produced something and nobody wants it? I mean, the, the principle, it just seems to me, is very simple, and you've granted it, that if it's not useful, then it doesn't have value. So it just flat out, apart from the considerations which you which you just uh, described, if something just—people don't want to buy it, if they won't pay for it. Then, in Marx's language, then it's, it turns out to be not socially useful. And if it's not socially useful, it's not a value. It's just as simple as that. I, yeah, I
1: agree with that with that.
2: Yeah, but then you don't know. You have to wait to see what happens, whether it sells or not. That's when you know. Yeah. I, I agree with that as well. But that makes value potential.
1: No, that that makes the magnitude of value or the question of whether the commodity has a value unknown prior to sale. But that's a question of knowing, not a question of, of being.
0: Already, I think we've really laid out clearly some clear differences of understanding about what Marx is arguing here. But maybe we can move on to question our third question that we prepared which says in our previous podcast Andrew Kleinman argued that Patrick's co-constitutive value theory interpretation collapses into this extreme form of value form theory in which value is determined in exchange with no relationship to socially necessary labor time the realized value which is finally and fully determined in exchange just replaces the potential value that existed prior to exchange Patrick do you agree and if not how does your co-constitutive theory avoid this problem
2: I mean, basically you know and in my paper I, I said this is I agree with pretty much all of the criticisms that Andrew and others would make of value form theory if they're aimed at exchange only value form theory which I don't think is Marxist theory and I think it's wrong okay the reasons why I think it's wrong are ones that uh, I think agree with Andrew's critique of value form theory generally. Difference is Andrew doesn't think there's anything else, you know, and, and in the podcast uh, you say that a number of times. So basically, the premise of my paper is, yeah, we've got to distinguish two forms of value form theory: the exchange only and the co-constitutive. And Andrew basically says uh, there's really only one. And if that were the case, I would be simply in agreement with him. I don't think it is. And I think it's it's clear there's there is a co-constitutive view, and I think it's clear actually that that's Marx's view. And if it's Fits in really much better, I think, with so many basic features of Marxist thinking. I mean, the the whole idea. If you go back to the Grundrisse introduction, and he talks about production in a narrow sense, and then production as the totality that includes circulation, consumption, and so forth. And so he sees the or the chapter right at the end of volume three on production and distribution. In other words, he wants to see these as as really an inseparable totality again, and the co-constitutive. View Co-constitutive means that production and circulation, exchange and circulation, are both co-constitutive. That just seemed to me to fit Marx's picture like a glove. And there's also room in it because Marx, you know, in terms of essence and appearance, Marx says, well, yeah, but really production is the most essential for the simple reason that if you don't produce things, there's nothing to circulate, to exchange or to consume. And I quite agree with that.
1: Yeah, I think we made clear between your comments, Brendan and mine, during the prior episodes that, yeah, I mean, I do see a distinction between the exchange-only variant and the co-constitutive variant. And my point was not that there's no difference, but that the co-constitutive variant, when all was said and done, collapses into the exchange-only variant because the action actual price of a commodity is determined in exchange and because of what happens during the process of exchange. To me that 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 is really the issue. Not the issue with respect to everything, but the 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 issue of where this interpretation in either the exchange-only variant or the, the co-constitutive variant where it departs fundamentally from from Marx. And so, for instance, I, I was just rereading Patrick's paper, Avoiding Bad Abstractions. He says that in Marx, this is page 234, says that in Marx's view, commodities enter circulation with latent value and surplus value and with adjustable prices that are actualized and given final determination in the sale of the commodity. So, yeah, the commodities have the potential values and prices before they enter exchange, but the real deal, their actual prices, are just whatever amount of money for which they are exchanged. That's, as I understand,
2: the the position. Well, what 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 is what would you say the actual price is? I mean, how many prices are there? There's really only one price, it's the actual price. Marx says that.
1: Sure. The question is, what determines that? Is it the process of exchange that determines it? Or is that just what happens in exchange that that the commodities sell for their actual prices that are determined prior to that? And and I would say in Marx's theory, it's the latter.
2: So a week before I sell the box of cereal, you want to say it has a determinate price?
1: Yes, which might differ from the determinate price when you go and you put the box of cereal in your cart. Which is the
2: price that matters? Which is the price that Marx bases his theory on. I mean, right right from the very beginning, I mean, he he begins the whole theory, he gets to the theory of value by working off of the price of commodities. I mean, that the commodities have a price, upright, one price. What's the price of the commodity? The one a week before or the one when the box of cereal actually sells? Or does it have two prices?
1: Well, price is, is not some, you know, timeless essence. It, it, there's not an answer to that question. The actual price of the, the box of cereal a week before put it in your cart is the price a week before and during the week it can change and the price when you put it in the cart and they scan it a week later that's its price so the price it's not inalterable
2: so it has all kinds of price it's it just like has it's got like zillions of prices y-
1: yes with respect to time the price is not invariant with respect to time Prices change over time. And
2: so do
0: values. I mean, Marx talks about that yes, at the absolutely. beginning of capital, right? When Marx is introducing the concept of socially necessary labor time, he talks about the power loom rendering previous commodities
2: that were made without the power loom um, less valuable. Yes, that we, we agree on that point completely. I mean, that, that has to do with the production side, the level of productivity side. But that But that means a commodity can have more than one value over its
0: lifetime before it's even purchased no they can't so if i make something with a hand loom and like you know and then a power, and it has one value and then someone invents the power loom and now my commodities
2: not worth as much, hasn't it had two values over the course of time? No, because, Brendan, my whole point is you're talking like it had a value, as if it was value. In other words, to say that it's a value is basically to say it's as good as money. This is why I mentioned the polarity of the value form. You can't be the thing, Mark says it very nicely, you can't be the commodity, the box of cereal and money at the same time, okay? If you're just the box of cereal, then you don't have a value form. That's my point from the beginning is the inseparability of the substance the magnitude and the form of value so you want to say and as you just put it there that it has all these different values but it does not doesn't have a value form yet but it has a price right
0: if it has a price then it has a value form
2: yeah but the price is just an ima- is imaginary until it's realized so for you the value form isn't the price it's
0: like an actual moment in time where you hand money to somebody for a commodity. I mean, isn't the term value form just referring to um, like the way relationships are expressed quantitatively in between commodities? You actually have to exchange money for the value form to exist. Yes, this is yes. This is just you can read this over and over again in Marx. Yes, you actually have to exchange it. But but when Marx talks about the value form, he's he's talking about like you know Coates Equals linen, shows its value in the body of the linen and things like that. He's not saying that it has to, that there's like a temporal moment of exchange and where the value forms. Yes, he does. Does he?
2: Over and over again, he does.
0: Sure, he does. I thought he was talking about showing that... relationships between
2: one thing expressing its value in another commodity. Yeah, but what's the other commodity that the whole argument is What co- what do you have to express value in?
1: Ah, you express it, you express it in the money commodity. So the expression is one thing, and the exchange of the item for that money commodity is an entirely different thing.
0: In just a few moments, we will continue this conversation with Patrick Murray about the value form, but first. As we do in every episode, we're going to hear a few things about Marxist Humanist Initiative, the organization that sponsors this podcast, from Anja Clard, the Organizational Secretary of Marxist Humanist Initiative.
3: Hello, this is Anja Clard, Organizational Secretary of Marxist Humanist Initiative. Marxist Humanist Initiative, or MHI, aims to contribute to the transformation of this capitalist world by projecting, developing, and concretizing the philosophy of Karl Marx and its further development in the Marxist humanism articulated by Raya Donayevskaya. We are not a political party, nor are we trying to lead the masses whose emancip- emancipation must be their own act. But we have seen that spontaneous actions alone are insufficient to usher in a new society. We seek a new unity of philosophy and organization in which mass movements, striving for freedom, lay hold of Marx's philosophy of revolution and recreate society on its basis. Today's political, economic, and environmental crises present a moment to engage people in discussion of these ideas. MHI is dedicated to the task of proving theoretically that an alternative to capitalism is possible. We are distinguished by our economic analyses, which demonstrate that the only opposite to the current world economic system is its abolition and replacement with one not based on the production of, quote, value. Because capitalism cannot be fundamentally reformed, attempts to reform it lead to an intensification of state capitalism, not socialism. MHI's ideas and actions, as well as our structure and rules, are guided by the interests of working people and freedom movements of people of color, LGBTQ people, other minorities, youth, and all those around the world who are struggling for self-determination in order to freely develop their own human natures. We have no interests separate and apart from theirs. We intend to practice as well as espouse a two-way road between our organization and people outside it as essential to developing a single dialectic in the relationship of theory to practice.
0: So when we left off, we were just talking about the way a commodity expresses its value in the body of another commodity uh, compared to the actual act of exchange. And Andrew was just about to say...
1: Uh, I I know that Brendan doesn't want us to quote a lot of text, but uh, if you look at the second page of chapter three on money in volume one of Capital, this is at the bottom of 189 of the Penguin, uh, he says, the price or money form of commodities is a purely ideal or notional form. And then he continues, since the expression of the value of commodities in gold is a purely ideal act, we may use purely imaginary or ideal gold to perform this operation. In its, fu- in its function as measure of value,
2: money therefore serves only in an imaginary or ideal capacity. Exactly right. That's my—that's exactly the point, Andrew, is that you can put a price on things. Then you have to come the, you, you, you know, that's the first section of the money chapter. Then we get to means of circulation, right? And then start looking around, you, you know, if you want to start looking at 201, 202, and so forth, that's where the quote that was the epigram uh, for my paper, we see then that commodity are in love with money, but the course of true love never did run smooth. I love that. Meaning what? Meaning that, yeah, uh, you put a price on something and you want that money, you want to get that amount of money in exchange. Well, that's what you want, but you may not get it, right? So
1: Yes, but when Marx and political economists of his day and before and since speak about the price, they are not, especially when they're speaking of competitive markets, they are not talking about the price tag that somebody slaps on the product. They're talking about something that emerges through a big social process, has a lot of determinants underlying it, uh, and so forth. You know, so we say the price of gold is that is not a statement about you know some gold seller. That putting a price tag you know people have there's a an asking price and a, this price and then there's the the price at which the, the gold is selling for right now and the question is right now if you're holding some gold and it's not selling is its price right now the same as the price of the, the actually realized price is it the same as the actually realized price of the gold that is selling You're, you know three ounces of gold does it have the same price as they do right now that's that's the issue or or is this like schrodinger's cat and we and, and it, it doesn't either have or not have a price until this three ounces of gold happens to sell.
2: I'm glad you brought in Schrodinger's cat because it is something like that. I mean, I think it's, I think what you've got is sort of the Heisenberg when in Heisenberg's (laughs) uncertainty principle, when you, you disturb the situation, when you try to measure it, but it's when you value for Marx is only fully determined quantitatively and qualitatively when you actually sell the commodity. so in in that sense, it's measurement, in, 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 if you look at the process of the market and of buying and of the actual selling of your of your commodities as getting the the actual measurement in terms of how much money do you actually get for these things, it's really the measurement is really part of the process of the determination. But as I understand it, you you ex- you accept this so i i'm I, i'm not no i don't accept this at all <laughs> So you you think that there are a lot of different that a commodity has like a different price like you know many 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 different prices
1: over time and potentially over place depending on the extent of the the market yes and it's not, it's not it's not only I that say this you can go onto the market watch site uh, you you can see the prices of things changing moment to moment
2: right and and the next moment before you sell them you may not get that price absolutely so which is the real price? When Marx derives value by pointing out that these commodities all have prices, what price do you suppose he's talking about there? Uh,
1: you're, you're talking about when, when he's deducing the existence of uh, intrinsic value?
2: Yes. And, and he's he deduces talk- it from the idea that every, in other words, it's because all the commodities, well, by virtue of being commodities, that means they have prices. What price is he talking about? Like,
1: Okay, well, he says it it is exchanged for, right there. So he says it's exchanged for, what are the various things? Page 127. Yeah, okay, so it's a quarter of wheat is exchanged for X amount of boot polish, Y amount of silk, or Z amount of gold. So its exchange value in terms of boot polish is X, in terms of silk is Y, in terms of gold is Z. And we call the exchange value in terms of gold, we call
2: that price. Yeah, and that's really what exchange value is. By the way, as long as you're on that page, Therefore, X boot polish, Y silk, etc., are mutually replaceable or of identical magnitude. So he can only get that because he's talking about one price, not like a whole raft of prices that you're talking about. And notice the next sentence. It follows from this that firstly, the valid exchange values of a particular commodity express something equal. Uh, you wondered about what in the world am I talking about with valid prices? Well, it's lifted from the third page of Capital.
1: Yeah, I'm aware of that. And I wrote, as you know, thousands of words. I still don't know what you mean, but that's another question. When Marx says a given commodity is exchanged for, I think a very plausible interpretation is not that he means that throughout all time, it will always be exchanged for X boot polish, Y silk, or Z gold, but that at this moment in time, it is exchanged for X boot polish, Y silk, or Z gold, and that two days later, it might be X plus epsilon boot polish polish y minus epsilon silk and z plus double epsilon uh, gold so to say it is exchanged for it means that it has one price yes and one exchange value in terms of silk etc at a moment in time at least that's a very natural and plausible interpretation right but
2: andrew i, I certainly don't agree that the prices of commodities can change over time But that whole argument is based on the idea of a price. And my question is, what price is he talking about? And as you read that, it's clear that he's talking about the price that they sell at.
1: Absolutely. So, so then the question gets into determination, uh, into causality. Is the exchange of the wheat with the gold what determines the price? Or is it rather that that is the price and it is determined prior to the exchange by a social process and determinants underlying and so forth? That's the question.
0: And that will have to be the question that we answer in part two of this fantastic discussion. So thank you so much to Patrick Murray for joining us. And you will get to hear more of what he has to say and what we have to say in the next installment of this episode. Thank you for listening to Radio Free Humanity. To find out more about the issues discussed, please go to MarxistHumanistInitiative.org. If you'd like the podcast... We would love you to subscribe to the podcast, to like the podcast, send us a comment, send us a question, tell your friends, tell your enemies, and we'll see you next time.